0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Minns. Bail is refused. You're out of order.
1: If it pleases the court. To adopt
2: this affirmation, please say the words, I do.
0: I do. Nothing further from this. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed.
3: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, welcome back to almost not quite post-COVID land, uh, and I say that because the wigs are together legally in a room again with the addition of me.
0: I don't think we should be admitting this, Jim. Okay. (laughs) The (laughs) wigs have been liberated.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean... (laughs) Hashtag. Should we get into it, or or should we... Look, how about I just introduce the wigs to those who are new to the show? Uh, Felicity Graham, please. Grace us with your vocal presence. Hello,
1: hello, hello, hello. Jim. Hello,
3: lovely, lovely to be with you again, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo. <laughs>
2: you never miss a chance.
3: It's you, the greatest role anyone in the Wigs show has has been bestowed, and of course, Emmanuel Kukasharian, please. Hello. So, ni-
0: so nice to see you. This is the best Zoom I've ever had. I know. It's almost like you're in the room with it's me, Jim. It's a 3D Jim. Zoom. <laughs> yeah. It's
3: crazy. Yeah. Gosh, guys, so much has happened in the, uh, in, in the world that you guys practice in. Uh, I've kind of been tuned out to the bulk of it And this is me getting enlightened uh, With my interactions with you guys And so we're going to dedicate the whole episode To a recap of everything that we've spoken about Up until now
2: So Jim, have The Wigs been successful In your professional view Before we do the recap? Uh,
3: in in my opinion The Wigs is the I think last time I checked The greatest Let me just read the quote The greatest podcast this side of the Mississippi Delta, I've been told. So this is pretty Huge. good. Look, congratulations, everyone. Which side is that? <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> I'll, I'll insert a, a clap track there, but it's an appropriate... It'll be fake, but it's appropriate to insert an applause there. Um, and well done to you guys, because that is not an easy task. So
2: is this so, the end of Series 1, or...?
3: There's no end. It just goes on and on. There's no end But are we going to the gonna do Series? The, the end like of Series 1? End of Season 1? Yeah, why not? Sure. Okay. So why not? Done. Congratulations, guys, on wrapping up a fantastic end of season. Uh, let's do a follow-up. Uh, we've spoken about a lot of stuff. So you guys have spoken about a lot of stuff. Uh, and we're going to go topic by topic, if I'm not mistaken. Now, I can't remember who spoke about what, but in the time that the wigs went to air, and we did a whole episode or a whole segment of an episode on George Pell's legal predicaments uh, which have since been resolved we are now going to jump back in and see the outcomes and have a chat about it what was interesting what was surprising and I'm going to cut to mr. Stephen Lawrence
2: okay so we talked about George Pell and his prosecution which at that point when we did episode one was before the Victorian Court of Appeal episode I think one. yeah we talked about Pell in episode one I think it was the last topic in episode one or second last. At that point, he had just lost his conviction appeal in the Victorian Court of Appeal. Mm-hmm. And we very presciently uh, predicted that he would get special leave or might well get special leave. He did get special leave. Tick for you guys. Well done. He, on the 7th of April 2020, was granted special leave and his appeal was allowed. It proceeded in a little bit of a different way to most matters that go to the High Court. They didn't, when they first entertained the special leave application, grant it and then list it for hearing. They rather referred uh, the question of whether special leave should be granted to a full court. So the full court effectively heard the special leave application and the appeal at the same time. Mm -hmm. On the 7th of April, they allowed the appeal. Uh, They set aside the convictions and they acquitted uh, Cardinal Pell. So big win for him. It was a unanimous decision, which is not that unusual, particularly with this High Court, but certainly shows that it was a decisive um, and conclusive win for him. What they uh, basically did was they found error in the approach of the Court of Appeal. And people might remember that we talked about That uh, the basic analysis of the majority of the the Court of Appeal was to ask whether, in light of the fact that the jury found the complainant to be a compelling, um, convincing and credible witness, whether there remained a possibility that the offending was possible or the offending had occurred. uh, The majority was of the view, yes, you couldn't say that it was impossible, even though there was a lot of evidence against it. And I might talk about in a moment what some of that uh, evidence was. But uh, the majority said, look, the jury accepted him as plausible and credible. We watched the video of his evidence. This is a complainant I'm talking about. We share their view, basically, that he was credible. You can't say, based on the opposing evidence in the prosecution case, that it was impossible. Therefore, it was a reasonable verdict open to the jury. Now, what the High Court said in a broad sense, applying their appellate function of detecting error, was that that was, in effect, a reversal of the onus of proof or an inversion of the standard that you apply to the question of whether a jury verdict was reasonable, and that what the Court of Appeal ought have done was ask whether there remained a reasonable doubt as to guilt. And they said, yes, there was a very substantial remaining reasonable doubt, a real possibility that an innocent person has been convicted, and they entered acquittals. So, as I said before, what was a central issue in the High Court Appeal and in the Court of Appeal proceedings, and indeed in the trial, was the unchallenged evidence of so-called opportunity witnesses. So, these were people who gave evidence that was inconsistent with the complainant's accounts, or account, and it sort of fell into three categories, and uh, people probably recall that the essence of the complainant's story was that after the conclusion um, of Sunday Mass in the cathedral, that the two altar boys, one of whom was the complainant in the trial, the other had died at the time of trial, had gone back to the sacristy after the service, in the immediate few minutes after the service, mm. that they had accessed uh, some altar wine in there. They had started to drink it. Right. Uh, the complainant then said that Cardinal Pell um, had come across them in the sacristy yeah. and had immediately sexually assaulted them both. Immediately, yep. And they said that he was fully robed at the time. And as I've said, that it was in those key few minutes immediately after the conclusion of the mass. Now, the prosecutor called a number of witnesses that can be categorised as opportunity witnesses who basically said that that couldn't have happened. And those witnesses fall into these categories. Firstly, witnesses who gave evidence of Pell's practice of greeting congregants On or after the cathedral, sorry, on or near the cathedral steps after Mass. And that evidence rose in respect of a couple of the witnesses to them saying they had actual recall of standing on the steps with him and that he would stay on the steps uh, talking to congregants for an extended period, up to 10, 15 minutes, maybe longer.
3: Why would they have recall? Was this a particularly special service? That's a
2: really good question. Because the reasoning of the Court of Appeal was, look, they weren't challenged. Nobody said that they were lying or mistaken. Mm -hmm. But it was open to the jury to think that they didn't really have that recall. The High Court said no. And the High Court was viewing it, I guess, through the prism of the fact that the prosecutor never sought to cross-examine them. Even though the judge had allowed permission for that uh, to occur. Uh, but the prosecutor forensically chose not to cross-examine them. So those witnesses, it was never suggested to those witnesses that they were mistaken. And the High Court, I think, found that to be a fundamentally important thing in assessing this question of whether a reasonable doubt remained. Uh, The second category of uh, this opportunity evidence or lack of opportunity evidence was witnesses who talked about the established and historical Catholic Church practice that required that the applicant as an archbishop always be accompanied when robed in the cathedral. And you'll remember I said earlier that the complainant gave very distinct evidence that Cardinal Pell had been fully robed mm-hmm. in all of um, uh, the formal... Uh, formal robes that he wore in that position, and that uh, notwithstanding uh, those robes, he'd managed uh, to perpetrate the various acts as described. Yet these witnesses said that there is a long entrenched uh, ceremonial tradition um, in the Catholic Church, that the Archbishop is not left alone when he's robed in the cathedral, and therefore basically the complainants should not be accepted on that account. The third category of evidence was evidence of continuous traffic in and out of the sacristy for 10 or 15 minutes after the conclusion of the procession that ended the Mass. And you'll recall that the complainant said that the assaults had happened in the sacristy and that that had occurred in a very short duration after the end of the mass. Uh, yet all of these witnesses came along and basically said that area, that sacristy, is a hive of activity. Uh, there's people everywhere. It just couldn't have happened. So basically, what the High Court has said is that the Court of Appeal got it wrong in just uh, in in asking themselves whether um, it could be true that, notwithstanding all of that evidence that maybe all those people are mistaken or all those people are lying, notwithstanding the lack of challenge to them, and therefore the complainant's evidence could be true and therefore it was open to the jury. The High Court has said that that's wrong. It's an inversion of the test. Um, So that's sort of essentially what the High Court um, has done. I think it raises a whole lot of broader issues about, you know, the way that the criminal justice system operates in respect of these sorts of allegations The thing that I found particularly sort of interesting about it and useful is there's the capacity in the way that the criminal law functions and the rules of evidence for a party to cross-examine their own witness, and the basic reason on one analysis why Pell won his appeal is potentially because the Crown didn't challenge all of these witnesses. It might have turned out quite differently mm-hmm. if the Crown had acted on the permission that they were in fact given under Section 38 of the Evidence Act and put to these people that they were variously mistaken or wrong um, or favouring uh, the Cardinal in their evidence, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Crown didn't do that. And I've just done quite a number of matters where where prosecutors have not challenged witnesses where they choose not to and it's a frustrating thing when they sort of negotiate their way particularly in a jury trial through the matter without sort of doing what the defence have to do, which is challenge people that we're going to ultimately say shouldn't be accepted, whether they're lying or mistaken. But then they go to the jury and submit that notwithstanding all of this inconsistent evidence, the person should still be convicted. So I think that's one of the quite significant things about the decision, in addition to, I suppose, this fundamental reaffirmation about the standard of proof and the legal tests that you apply in assessing whether a jury verdict is reasonable.
0: It's worth noting for people who aren't criminal lawyers that the reason that the prosecution called these witnesses, even though they're effectively giving evidence against their case, is because they're bound to, but the prosecutor is bound to call all relevant witnesses, even where they might say evidence that the prosecution doesn't like. Uh, and <clears throat> what the Section 38 of the Evidence Act Procedure permits is then once they've been called for them to cross-examine them, effectively the hostile witness of the American TV show mm-hmm. style of thing. Um, but I, I, for my part, I'm, I wonder about an intermediate appellate court getting something that's so obvious so wrong. Mm. Um, I mean, it seemed to me, having listened to the appeal in the Court of Appeal, Victoria, and having read all of the judgments that have been published, that really no lawyer could come to the view that this was a satisfactory and safe conviction. Um, I'm just surprised that that wasn't taken. I understand the rationale of the Court of Appeal was, look, we believe, we've seen the video, we believe what the complainants say, but really it's not rocket science in terms of legal principle what the High Court did and resoundingly did and I just, I have some concern about an Intermediate Appellate Court missing that.
1: Well, the High Court's judgment, in effect, said the underlying findings of the majority decision in the Victorian Court of Appeal were correct, but they came to the wrong conclusion. Mm. Yeah. That the findings that they made about the various different factual issues meant that they should have allowed the appeal, yeah. which... It is quite concerning, I think, that you can have that earlier foundational decision-making process and be on the right page but then come to the wrong conclusion. Yeah.
3: How does that explain the Victorian Court of Appeals uh, situation here? Because I think, if, correct, if I'm wrong, you've just explained, Manny, to me, the uh, and the audience at home, of course, uh, how the criminal procedure went through, in a jury trial, but why didn't the, the the Court of Appeal in Victoria correct
0: the error here? Who knows? Okay. I mean, the short answer is one doesn't know. The longer answer is one suspects that they saw the video, they thought that the people giving evidence were believable, and so that's where the analysis ended for them.
2: Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And that probably raises the second kind of, or one of the other important sort of flow-on implications of the decision because the High Court was critical of the decision of the Court of Appeal to watch the videos and they basically said it's not the role of an intermediate appellate court to watch the videos of the complainant's evidence and other evidence to balance it Uh, because in a case like this, the fact of the verdicts of guilty means the jury has accepted the complainant as credible. That's a starting point in the analysis in applying the appellate test. So you don't need to watch the video to come to the view that they're credible because that's what the jury's already done. And what they're basically said is notwithstanding that they're credible and the jury found them credible, you've got this other objective evidence that was unchallenged. The question is, does that give rise to a reasonable doubt? And we should probably point out that it was only two of three judges in the Court of Appeal that got it so horribly wrong mm-hmm. and there was a judge... <clears throat> In the minority Justice Weinberg who just happens to be probably the most respected uh, judge in criminal law in Australia who gave a highly persuasive very detailed and very lengthy uh, dissenting judgment saying that the Court of Appeal got it wrong. Um, So maybe one answer to your question Jim as to why they got it so wrong is that they didn't follow Justice Weinberg and the two judges in the majority are not long-standing, experienced criminal lawyers. They're people that came to the judiciary from areas other than crime and they've obviously formed the views that they're having good faith but one conclusion that's hard to escape is they probably should have paid more regard and maybe deference to Justice Weinberg's experience, experience and wisdom in criminal law.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I find a bit concerning is the narrative that's kind of got around which is somehow this undermines the verdict of a jury so that you've got an appellate court overturning the verdict of a jury. Hey, are juries... Do we even need juries? Because judges can get it right and so on. And I, I think the answer to that is that juries sometimes get it wrong. When they get it wrong in favour of a defence... or of an accused fine, that's, that's the way the system's weighted. And when they get it wrong in favour of the Crown... That's why we have the appellate courts. It's not easy to get up on an unsafe and unsatisfactory Mm. ground. It's so rare. One looks at the law reports. It's just so rare that anyone gets up. And really, if you look at the evidence in this case, it was obvious. Why did the jury make a mistake? Who knows? But there's any number of things someone can point to in this case, including the publicity, including the notoriety of Cardinal Pell and so on, that there's any number of reasons why a jury might have convicted him.
2: I mean, I think one is that the week before their verdict, the Prime Minister made a national apology to victims of child sexual assault and said things to the effect of, quite properly and quite importantly, we believe you. And, you know, said things to the effect of that an important part of this apology, an important part of reparation is acceptance and belief, and all of that's true. But, geez, it put an accused in a criminal trial in a child sexual assault matter with a high profile and this involvement in the Catholic Church in a pretty difficult position. And it just... um, There seems to have been, I think, many failures in the Victorian justice system, whether it's police or DPP, uh, but also maybe the timing of the trial was wrong. Maybe the trial should have been put off. I don't know.
3: Is there something that suggests that they didn't look at the possibility of a reasonable doubt?
2: I think it came from, and this raises an interesting point, so Robert Richter, who represented Pellet Trial, he is, you know, one of Australia's leading trial counsel. He's famous for, I think, quite an aggressive approach. He he mounted a very vigorous and aggressive defence and he put to the jury very strongly, you wouldn't just have a reasonable doubt, you would find that this offence is impossible. That's how he framed his pitch to the jury, that this just couldn't have happened. And he relied upon, obviously, all of this lack of opportunity uh, evidence that I was talking about before. Okay. But through framing it as a question of whether it's impossible or not, I, th- you know, that flowed into the Court of Appeal proceedings. And Weinberg, in his dissenting judgment, pointed out that that was maybe an unfortunate way of pitching it because you're taking on a burden that you don't need to take on because the accused doesn't need to prove that it's impossible. The accused just needs to prove there's a doubt. But I think it infected the majority because what the majority then did was said, well, the jury's accepted him as credible and believable. Now we just look at whether the opportunity or lack of opportunity evidence makes it impossible. If the answer to that question is no, then it's appeal dismissed. And that was to misstate uh, the test in a pretty fundamental way and I think it maybe had its origins in the way that the whole matter was framed.
1: Mm. It raises a really, I think, complicated question in forensic decision-making for defence advocates where you think you're justified in putting your defence that high, that it's impossible for this to have happened, the evidence just does not support it at all, but you risk setting that higher hurdle and giving the impression to a jury that you have to actually establish that it's impossible in order to secure an acquittal. So wow. it's, yeah, in terms of doing a closing address or the way that you frame your defence, I think it raises quite a good example of how these are really difficult forensic decisions um, in terms of how you frame your case.
2: And there's all these conventional wisdoms, you know, that people will sort of trot out. Because I've done that before, like talked about different standards of proof to juries. And and I've had... I remember one case where the judge said, why do you do that? You shouldn't be doing that. You're, you know, you're sort of introducing these additional standards. But you sort of do it as a way to explain the primacy of the high criminal test, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know that it's a fair
0: criticism of Richter. Yeah. No, I... I yeah. Sorry, go ahead, man. No, I don't, I don't know that it is a fair criticism of Richter. You do that kind of things in trial. What, what I don't know, because we haven't seen the whole of what he said, is whether he qualified it in any way. I mean, quite often you'll say, look, it's just impossible on the evidence, but hey, maybe you have got Mm -hmm. some questions about whether or not it's impossible. And if that's what you're asking, then you've got a reasonable... Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, I think he said things to the jury
1: like, if you think it probably happened, you've got to acquit. Yeah. So he didn't only couch it in in those terms. This case um, brought to mind an earlier decision of the High Court in 2012, a case of Douglas with a double S... That was actually a judge-alone trial in South Australia, so the judge had to give reasons for um, his decision to convict the accused of uh, aggravated indecent assault of uh, his granddaughter... And in that case, there was a challenge to the sufficiency of the reasons and there was also a challenge which was similar to Pell that the verdict couldn't be supported by the evidence and was an unreasonable verdict. And the accused gave sworn evidence in that trial and denied the allegations. And the High Court... uh, considered how the Court of Criminal Appeal had dealt with the case and said it's an error to view the trial as reducing uh, it to a case of word against word. It's a characterisation which fails to recognise that the resolution of a criminal case does not depend on whether the evidence of one witness is preferred to that of another. The resolution of a criminal trial depends upon whether the evidence taken as a whole proves the elements of the offence beyond reasonable doubt. The High Court said that even if the judge was not persuaded by the accused's denials, he couldn't convict the accused unless satisfied that it was not reasonably possibly true. So you can accept a complainant as truthful and that is not inconsistent with the existence of a reasonable doubt as to guilt and that's something that I think is also reflected in the Pell decision that you can, as a tribunal of fact, whether you're a jury or a trial judge sitting alone, find a complainant to be giving a truthful account but in the end find that there is a reasonable doubt as to the guilt of the accused because of, for example, denials or other inconsistent evidence or um, other factors that undermine that uh, account of the complainant. And just coming to your point, Steve, about this idea of the importance of talking about different standards with... A jury. The High Court finished in Douglas with saying the criminal standard of proof is a designedly exacting standard. A different, lesser standard is applied by courts dealing with contested issues involving the care and protection of children. This wasn't that kind of case. It was an error um, for the Court of Criminal Appeal to hold that it had been open to the trial judge to be satisfied of the reliability of the complainant's statements and to reason from that, despite the denials by the accused, to a conclusion that his guilt had been proved beyond reasonable doubt. So I think sometimes it's um, a bit difficult for people to hold those two ideas in their mind, that a complainant can essentially be accepted as someone who's being a truthful witness, Mm. but that doesn't result in a conviction. Because you can still have doubt. That's right. It's also
2: true of the Pell case in this sense that he gave a record of interview. He didn't give sworn evidence in the trial, but he had given a version. He'd given a side of the story, and it's talked about a bit in the High Court decision. And it's remarkably in line with how his defence was then put at trial and on appeal. That so it was that it was improbable. In, yeah. Possible, wasn't yeah. It? Yeah, I mean he and
1: people would give evidence to the effect that there was these practices in yeah. place that You're just right, meant right, that right. this this was obviously defense. false. He right, said it's right. it's
2: basically impossible. If you speak to people, you will find that that is just so unlikely that it couldn't have happened. Yes. And one of the interesting things is I think this is so in respect of the second incident which was said by the high court to be even more unlikely than the first and it was essentially a sexual assault of complainant a during a procession in a sort of open part of the cathedral in the presence of scores of other people. Mm. and um,
1: Including adults.
2: Yeah, yeah. And the police didn't speak to the people that were said to be in the procession. So there was a lack of investigation, a lack of investigation from the outset of the credibility of the allegation, which raises this sort of broader question that we touched upon in episode one, which is I guess this sort of firm belief that in many senses, whether you're talking about police or DPP, there is a different standard being applied to child sexual assault matters and a different standard being applied to historical sexual assault matters where they're much more complainant-driven, where prosecutors are much less willing to form a view that there is just a reasonable doubt in this case and we're not going to proceed with it because of that that there seems to be a tendency to invariably uh, proceed with them, even in cases where a pretty objective view would tend to suggest that a jury's going to throw it out, um, and juries then tend to, Mm -hmm. which, you know, just raises questions about how we subject people to criminal trials and in what circumstances. And I was interested yesterday, I was listening to an American podcast that was talking about the Joe Biden sexual allegation, sexual assault allegation that's just broken. And there is no statute of limitations that would be applicable to this new allegation uh, that Tara Reid has made against him. But the people on this podcast, one was a lawyer and the others were sort of senior political commentators in America, were were taking it as a given that there could never be a criminal prosecution in such a case in America because it would just be so clearly incapable of ever meeting the criminal standard. Mm. And And they talked about an
1: analysis. This was on Slate Political Advers. They talked about an analysis that had been written in an article by a prosecutor. And I tell you what, that that is not the
2: case here. I have seen many cases where people are charged on evidence that's sometimes even weaker. But it's uh, it's just part of our, our, our system.
0: Well, and they're required, judges in New South Wales at least, are required to give directions that say it doesn't, I don't say this in exactly these words, but effectively say, don't worry about delay. There are many reasons why someone might not report it when it happens. So mm. they, there's kind of all these steps taken to cure delay as a reason for not bringing, mm. <coughs> for, for, for acquitting somebody. But I, I think it's... I think we've moved to a dangerous place where things are put in front of juries which are highly emotive and people know that they're highly emotive and for that reason there's a prospect of conviction in circumstances where they otherwise wouldn't be. Mm.
1: So people might know that Pell had a... Tr- ..that this was his second trial that he got convicted of these charges out, and that those convictions are now just been overturned. But there was a first trial where the jury was hung... Um, I read that it was hung ten 2 in favour of acquittal. Mm. Had you guys heard that? No, no,
2: no, yeah. I mean, it's not made. It's not made public. Those no, figures, it's not is it? normally. But there's often rumours or scuttlebutt right. that often are pretty influential. This was the
3: embargoed one, right? The the the, the first trial. The was... whole
2: trial, first and second trial, were basically conducted in camera, so conducted in confidence. Yes. Yeah, no one's ever seen the complainants videoed evidence. No, 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 but I mean, I mean, it wasn't reported
3: involved. in the media flick when it first there happened. There was suppression orders There was suppression, right? yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So in Victoria, save for some current provisions relating to COVID that allow for the next six months judge-alone trials, you can't have a judge-alone trial in Victoria and you couldn't at the time of Pell's trial. But do you think he would have applied for a judge-alone trial if he could have?
2: I don't know, it's an interesting question. I think it would have been hard not to advise him to seriously consider it. I mean, Gosh. given the prejudice afoot against him. Yeah, but it's a brave
0: judge who acquits yeah. the cardinal. Yeah. You know.
3: Does the Pell decision... You wouldn't want a judge who's looking for a promotion. Necessarily. Yeah. Uh, does the Pell decision now um, open up the door to um, you know, quashing uh, trials that are based on eyewitness testimony?
2: No, no, I don't think there's a broader implication like that. However, I think it might represent, and we see this in the law and I guess in society generally. We see tendencies wax and wane, and I think this might be seen as a bit of a turning point. You know?
0: Yeah, I hope so. And for my part, I'm certainly going to be using it to, as you raised earlier, Stephen, to push back against prosecutors who don't do their cross examination yeah. and kind of try and. Effectively cheat their way through by not putting propositions to witnesses.
2: Have their cake in it too. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, Manny, you were talking earlier about um, the numbers in terms of these appeals, and I was interested to look at a Judicial Commission report which was published in 2011, so it's a bit old now, Um, on conviction appeals originating from New South Wales trials um, on indictments and not concerns with summary matters. They looked at a period of uh, 2001 to 2007 trials, about almost 1,000 trials, where um, there were conviction appeals. And it was interesting the way that the report framed some of the discussion and raised this idea that there are sometimes competing principles of the right to a fair trial and the finality of a jury verdict and that an appeal against conviction is really this fundamental safeguard to ensure that trials are conducted fairly. But posing there there being this concern about, as you said, legitimacy of um jury verdicts being undermined by excessive high appeal success rates and the report authors um said this which i thought was quite interesting it's doubtful whether it is possible to identify what the ideal number of conviction appeals would be on a yearly basis or indeed to nominate the optimum success rate for those appeals and then they went on to an analyze the data about what had happened and the, the types of grounds that got up, and the numbers and success rates, and overall, the trend in New South Wales at that time was um, effectively that the numbers over that time went down. Um, the success rate also went down.
2: And what's the general success rate? Yeah, like so, so in two thousand and
1: one, um, the success rate was forty-eight point five percent that went down to 24.3% in 2007. And so
2: the percentage of people appealing jury rate. convictions at one point was 48% success?
1: Yeah. geez, that seems high, doesn't it? Have the
0: numbers gone up? Is so reasonable?
1: the numbers have gone hmm. down. Seems high. Um, so the success rate um, from appeals in sexual assault and related offences was one of the highest. It was 43% over the the total period. Um. Of people that were successful, about two thirds got a new trial, about a third got acquitted. Mm. In terms of putting it in.
2: So, um, errors of law have been made in their trial, in the a new trials? Orders, yeah,
1: yeah, so in terms of putting it in context of the broader criminal justice system, less than 5% of all proven cases went on appeal to a conviction appeal. So we're talking about a pretty small pool. Obviously a lot of people plead guilty and so the question of a conviction mm. appeal doesn't arise.
0: Almost all of them the appeals have a barrister sign off saying there's reasonable prospects, yeah. will they? So you'd think fifty fifty would be mm. fair. That's
1: yeah, and about twenty percent of the successful conviction appeals were because the jury verdict was unreasonable or could not be supported having regard to the evidence. So that's kind of the Pell category. Mm.
2: Is this New South Wales?
1: New South Wales yeah. only, but including appeals all the way up to the High Court, not just the CCA, and mostly if that was the outcome, an acquittal was entered um, in ninety percent of cases.
2: I reckon juries get it right most of the time. That's my sort of general feel. I think you know, I mean, there might be errors of law and then it's set aside, but in terms of how you feel when you walk out of the courtroom about the fact that your client just got found guilty, I would put more confidence in juries than judge alone.
3: Well, have you ever, have any of you ever been on a jury before your profession? No, unfortunately. I wish. I was. Mm,
2: really? Yep. Now, you, we can't ask you and you can't talk about it, but that's Can, interesting. Is, is that we why? can't ask, <laughs> you you. ask you. We can't ask no, you. No, I think, isn't there some new provision that stops you talking about it?
3: Was thirteen years ago. I yeah. won't. Well, wait, if, without getting into the specifics, we were directed by the judge to consider if there was a possibility of a reasonable doubt.
2: So, did you find him not guilty? Yeah, we then? did. Hmm.
3: How did you know
0: it was him?
2: Uh, because ninety percent of the people <laughs> of criminal justiceism.
0: But I will you say, you can't this. do that anymore. What do you mean? You can't. The judges can't put their can't say that kind of thing did anymore. You get
1: a directed acquittal. Yeah.
0: You can get a directed acquittal. You can
1: get a Prasad. Oh,
0: well, you, you can't can get that. a Prasad. No, they got rid of Prasad. Prasad's yeah. gone. Oh, sorry,
1: you can't get mm. a Prasad anymore. You can't anymore. get a
0: Prasad anymore. I've never liked him anyway. You can't really get a comment from the judge on any matter of fact. Oh, okay.
3: In well, things have in changed then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, right.
1: That case about summing up that said basically the judge
3: shouldn't enter. No, it was a weak, weak right. case. It was a weak case. Weak, very weak. We'll be back after a word from our non existent sponsors. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to a celebration of the first season of the Wigs, a wrap-up episode of everything we've spoken about. And uh, we've spoken about a lot. Uh, and I'm just going to open up the iPad just slightly to see what it is that we're we are talking about. The abortion law that was passed in New South Wales, we spoke about it on episode one. One? Jeez, one was a cracker, wasn't it? And, uh, you know, it's progressed. And to tell us about it, is Felicity Graham.
1: Yeah, so, Jim, in October last year, the New South Wales Parliament passed a law that in its main provision decriminalises abortion in New South Wales, which is a much welcome change to the law. Uh, And the details of it we discussed a bit in terms of the proposals uh, in episode one, but where it ultimately landed was that um, a woman or girl who is pregnant up to 22 weeks gestation um, can have an abortion performed by a medical practitioner with their informed consent um, or um, in other certain circumstances after that point, um, depending on the medical circumstances um, and things like that. One of the other issues that we discussed in Episode 1 was also this issue of whether a um, person can obtain an abortion for the purpose of um, sex selection, so whether they could abort a child or abort a fetus because they had identified the fetus as being um, male or female.
3: I remember now. It's all coming back to me. Yeah. This is the first topic of episode one. Wow.
2: And we talked about the book, The First Century After Beatrice, didn't we?
1: Yeah, I think, oh, we, yeah. Did. Mm. I think we did. Awesome book. Um, and basically, the answer is yes. Um, a person can um, have an abortion for that reason if they so choose. Um, the Parliament passed a um, a provision that says the Parliament opposes the performance of termination for the purpose of sex selection and the Secretary of the Ministry of Health must within 12 months after the commencement of this section conduct a review on the issue in terms of whether or not terminations are being performed for that purpose and prepare and and give to the minister that report. And how would they
2: research that question?
1: I think it would be very difficult.
2: Because I suspect that's not the sort of thing people would admit to. Yeah. Is that right, do you think?
0: Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah, so bearing in mind, if you can have a termination for effectively whatever reason with informed consent up to 22 weeks and we think that sex can be identified from around 16 to 20 weeks or something like that yeah I don't know how it would be detected and also
0: 12 months is too soon like if this thing's going to happen you you need to spend a couple of years I would have thought to let it filter through and because people won't really understand it and won't won't be in the zeitgeist, I don't think. Mm. I mean,
2: even if it's happening after 12 months or two years or whatever, I don't know that revisiting in any sense the question of decriminalisation is going to be the meaningful
0: response, right? Mm. Like, well, the, the criminal laws are well, not
2: going to really deal with this, I don't think.
0: The idea is that, at least in the Act, is that the report from the Minister must include, this is in subsection 3 of 16 of the Abortion Law Reform Act, The report must include recommendations about how to prevent terminations for being performed for the purpose of sex selection. And that report has to be given to both Houses of Parliament. So it may well be that there's some legislative amendment put in place in light of that. And I think that the people who are interested in this will, you know, make Mm. sure that there is some sort of debate that occurs when that report comes out. um, Assuming Parliament ever sits again. Mm. So... Uh, but one of the interesting things in this is, <coughs> according to section 12 of that act, you can perform a termination on yourself at any time. So...
2: Is that to take into account pills that sort of effectively abort fetuses, do you think? Yeah, well,
0: I, I, I mean, there's any manner of ways in which it can be done, but a, a woman could perform a termination on herself at any time, regardless of the age... Of the fetus. I mean I make no comment about that rather than just other than just noting it.
1: Mm. Is that verbatim? Yeah, so the provision says despite any other act, a person who consents to, assists in, or performs a termination on themselves does not commit a- Is your mattress making noises it never used
0: to? Or is it sagging, causing you to then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the
1: best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a
0: 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com.
1: Offense. Hmm.
0: That's because under Section 82 of the Crimes Act, which was amended... Um, or, in fact, substituted by this Act, it is an offence for an unqualified person mm. to assist in the termination of a. Of, um, well, to assist in a termination. Hmm.
1: Um, I think we also talked briefly in episode one about the quite rare scenario where a termination actually results in a fetus being born alive. alive. We did. Yeah. So the act specifically provides a provision in relation to that circumstance in section. Because part 11. of the debate was
2: there should be pain relief and stuff, wasn't
1: there? Yeah. So what the provision says is this section applies if the termination results in a person being born. Nothing in this act prevents the medical practitioner who performed the termination or any other registered health practitioner present at the time the person is born from exercising any duty to provide the person with medical care and treatment that is clinically safe and appropriate to the person's medical condition. And to avoid doubt, the duty owed by a registered health practitioner to provide medical care and treatment to a person born as a result of a termination is no different than the duty owed to provide medical care and treatment to a person born other than as a result of a termination. Mm. So if a baby happens to be born and they're entitled to all of the same treatment and care from the doctors and nurses to... Help that baby then thrive.
0: Seems reasonable. Mm.
2: Yeah, though it might not mean much, right? In in the sense that the next of kin for a child at that age is going to have um, right to make some or certain medical treatment calls, aren't they? Mm.
1: Mm. To not resuscitate, for mm. example, because
2: mm. mm. I suspect most. Uh, babies born in that situation are not going to be very viable, right? Mm. And probably highly damaged.
0: It's
2: it's icky stuff, isn't it?
3: Yeah, Yeah, okay. So one of the controversies that came up with this legislation, proposed legislation at the time, was the controversy around uh, what happens after the 22-week mark. Is there any clarification there, Felicity?
1: There is. So after 22 weeks, there's a specific provision in Section 6 of the... Act which says effectively that a medical practitioner, a specialist medical practitioner, may perform a termination on a person who's more than 22 weeks pregnant if certain circumstances exist, um, which include that in all the circumstances there are sufficient grounds for the termination to be performed in um, the opinion of the specialist medical practitioner having consulted with another specialist medical practitioner who um, is also of that view and with the informed consent of the person who's pregnant or if they lack capacity, which also applies to um, terminations under 22 weeks with the informed consent of a person who's lawfully authorised to give consent on their behalf, it has to be a termination that's performed at a hospital um, or an approved health facility. And in terms of this question of the specialist medical practitioner considering whether in all the circumstances there are sufficient grounds, they have to consider things like all relevant medical circumstances. So, for example, let's say a fetus is um, identified as not being viable um, at a late stage in the pregnancy or something like that or that the health of the pregnant person is in jeopardy if the pregnancy were to continue or things like that, then they also have to consider the person that is the pregnant person's current and future physical, psychological and social circumstances, which many was a test that had been identified in the law in terms of what might satisfy the necessity defence under earlier provisions that criminalised abortion.
0: Yeah, that was effectively used as the justification that psychological and social circumstances and economic circumstances were used to ground a defence of necessity to get around the old abortion offence. So it seems to me that on the face of it, Assuming you can get a couple of doctors to sign off on it, you can get an assisted abortion for any reason.
2: Yeah, it'll be on demand. I would have thought almost. Or yeah,
0: yeah. almost on demand
2: after twenty-two weeks.
0: Yeah,
1: they have to also consider professional standards and guidelines that apply to the performance of terminations. And I should, should say also, which might cut in
2: a little bit there. I would have thought in I terms of particularly towards the, the end of the pregnancy. I'm pretty sure I remember reading that there's different standards and guidelines <laughs> that basically speak against abortions right at the last moment.
1: The other thing we should say is that in an emergency setting, a medical practitioner, whether or not they're a specialist medical practitioner, may perform an, a termination on a person who's more than 22 weeks pregnant without going through that kind of checklist um, of requirements if they consider it's necessary to save the person's life or to save another foetus. So, for example, if there are twins or triplets and it's right. necessary to um, save one of the foetuses. Am I...
0: Sorry. It, it's worth noting that the guidelines Section 13 provides for the, Minis- the Secretary of the Ministry for Health um, to approve hospitals or other facilities that the Secretary considers appropriate... At fas- as facilities which terminations may be performed after 22 weeks. Which is a little weird. I don't know why that's given to the Secretary for the Ministry of Health rather than the Minister. Mm. And also, I don't know what the effect of that approval is, although I suspect that somewhere buried in the subsection sits which deals with it, there's a need for it to be conducted at a approved location. Um, and... The guidelines are also statutorily provided for Which is to say The Secretary of the Ministry for Health May issue guidelines About the performance of terminations I just wonder why It's the Secretary And not the Minister It's a bit odd That they would disavow Political um, input Into that decision For it is obviously A political matter It's weird
3: Uh, Am I uh, wrong in assuming that the law here assumes that nobody is going to perform a self-termination after the 22-week mark, but it does allow for it to be legally acceptable, but it just assumes that you're not going to?
2: I think that's right, but I suppose maybe it's a bit like the way they decriminalise suicide, not to encourage it. Mm-hmm. but just in recognition that it's not a matter for the criminal law. Yes. I suspect that might be the policy rationale behind Section 12. That there's, yeah, there's all sorts of very unfortunate circumstances that can can constitute the offence of infanticide shortly after birth. And I imagine there's all sorts of unfortunate situations where people administer abortions on themselves. Right. And not obviously, uh, the act wouldn't seek to encourage that, but would just seek to disapply the criminal law from it.
0: It's pretty hard if you're a doctor and your patient says to you, "If you don't perform this abortion on me, I'm going to do it myself." Yeah, it's hard to th- think of that as not being the circumstance where you just where you could meet whatever guidelines mm. have been published after 22 weeks, Yeah, mm.
1: well, for patient care,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Mental girl. health, patient girl. care, Woman physical or girl care
1: puts themselves massively at risk, potentially in terms of performing a self-abortion. I mean, obviously there are ways now of procuring pills that can cause a termination, particularly at earlier stages of pregnancy. But
2: Is there a provision for conscientious objectors, Flick? Because that was another one of the issues that played out in the Parliament.
1: There is. So Section 9 provides that where a registered health practitioner has a conscientious objection and they're asked by a patient to perform a termination or assist, they have an obligation as soon as possible to disclose their conscientious objection to the first person, to the to the pregnant person. And if um, they... There's basically a process for trying to transfer the care to another registered health practitioner... Um, or give the person information on how to locate such a medical practitioner who um, can perform the termination. It's
2: going to be interesting to see how that plays out, particularly in some country areas, because Wagga Wagga, I know, has got a cohort of doctors who won't uh, participate in abortions, and I know mm. that access in that part of the world's been an issue. I remember when It'll I be interesting to see yeah how that plays absolutely.
1: Out. I remember when I lived in Dubbo first time round in two thousand and nine. Um, there was a big story that broke uh, in the Daily Liberal about how abortions weren't available in Dubbo, and I think a major part of that was because of conscientious objectors within the uh, medical profession there. There's definitely an access to healthcare issue for women and girls living in regional areas of the country
3: welcome back to the wigs we are celebrating our first 12 episodes here with a uh well we're revisiting the topics that we talked about and uh a big one uh particularly dear to um our next week's heart is uh, legal aid, the status of legal aid in New South Wales at the moment, Emmanuel Kirkosherian.
1: Just a quick fact check on that. We've actually only done 10 episodes so far, Jim. Oh, my
3: God. Mm. Should, this is something I should know about. This is about. our 11th. Is this is our 11th. So this is our 12th episode celebrating what we were talking about. And, and this is
1: our 11th episode. Oh, my
3: God. I can't keep up with this. Uh, Jesus, Anyway.
0: Okay. So... Look, I think again in episode one, which seems to have been quite an what, episode. Is
3: there anything else we spoke about? Well, uh,
0: I don't know. We, yeah, we may have had other episodes. <Wonders2> what be? was
2: that one? Section 501 of the it Migration Act. Oh. That was in episode one. Yeah. Was it? I think so.
0: Anyway, episode, at some point we did like the legal...
2: we can't remember them. over
3: there Oh, yeah.
0: At some point we did the legal aid crisis, yes. which continues. Um, the quote-unquote good news is that the... Last year, I think, or was it this year, the Berejiklian government announced a legal aid rate increase. Um, it was announced to go four years into the future, that is to say, to incrementally go up to $210 an hour for solicitors and a proportional increase for barristers. Um, legal Aid New South Wales. Um, Sorry, it went to one hundred ninety-five dollars an hour, not two hundred ten, as requested by Legal Aid New South um, Wales. That is the fee that has been promised by the Attorney General. Now he gave a specific sum of money, eighty-eight million dollars in extra funding, um, and what remains to be seen is whether or not that hourly rate, that is to say, one hundred ninety-five dollars an hour, will be delivered. Uh, or whether or not the Attorney-General or Legal Aid will keep the Attorney-General's promise. Um, many of us suspect that that will not happen, um, particularly given the amount of money that the Attorney-General has been provided, but it'll be interesting to see what Legal Aid does, whether or not they tell the Attorney-General that they can't pay that rate, whether or not they pay that rate um, and end up running out of money at some point or whether or not they try and fudge it in some way. Um, So that's really what's going on there. But interestingly, this week in a a case called The Against Cranston, 2020 New South Wales Supreme Court 469, Justice Beach Jones, um, in a Dietrich application, which I think we've spoken about before, which is essentially an application that a matter be stayed Mm -hmm. because someone can't afford to fund their trial or fund their defence, he's honour said in that that given the lack of, this is a paragraph 9, given the lack of increase in legal aid rates over a sustained period, it cannot be assumed that a grant of legal aid to accused will lead to them being adequately represented. Mm. Uh, and he went on to say that just because, in effect, there are practitioners who might be willing to take it doesn't mean that those practitioners are skilled enough to run them, run a particular matter, and the court won't assume it. So now you've got a supreme court judge saying that legal aid rates are so bad that even if you get a grant of it you might not be able to get a lawyer to run your matter. And that's a, in the context of a fairly complicated matter, but there are lots of fairly complicated matters sure. that run before the court. So um, the President of the Bar Association has said that this is a tim game SC has said that this is a positive first step and it is um, But it's only about a third, the $88 million is only about a third of what Legal Aid New (laughs) South Wales advised was desperately needed. It's still desperately needed. Um, There's some fear for those of us involved in the space that not only is it not going, no additional money going to come forward, but what's going to happen is that some sort of fudge is going to be put into place. So we're hoping, but at this stage we labour along um, with clients, clients. not given the money to defend themselves that's the update sad as it is yeah.
3: we are back again episode 16 are we flick fact check Twenty-seven. Uh, are you <laughs> paying attention, Felicity. We previously, <laughs> we previously spoke about a, another high court matter. Do you
2: can't do this on Zoom, can you? This sort of report. Hell no! Oh no,
3: this yeah. is Zoom. This is Zoom. Zoom what
2: are you talking about? Oh, are we on Zoom?
3: So, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. <clears throat> we are on Zoom. Um, not post vid yet. We're still vid. <laughs> That's right. So we uh, previously, spoke, previously spoke about another High Court uh, matter, one invo- involving Annika Smethurst uh, and Miss Smethurst has since uh, had her matter resolved.
0: Yeah, so you'll recall in Episode 2 we were going into the AFP raiding various media outlets um, pursuant to search warrants that had been issued and on the 15th of April 2020, the High Court unanimously once again unanimously held that the Australian Federal Police raid on the News Corp journalist Anika Smethurst was unlawful um, and it was unlawful because the warrant that purported to authorise it was invalid um, it was invalid basically because it failed on two, two fairly straightforward requirements of warrants um, it failed to identify the offence being investigated um, in effect when you give when you when you issue a warrant, you have to tell a person in that warrant why they're being investigated. That's one of the trade-offs for invading their property. Um, and it did not set that out in adequate detail, um, and it misstated the offence being investigated. Now there are really quite technical reasons why it was invalid. Um, one may well understand why. A, Somebody sitting in the registry of a local court who are the people empowered to issue these warrants might not have understood that. Uh, But on those reasons, the High Court overturned the warrant or found it unlawful. But perhaps most alarmingly, um, despite that, they didn't order the destruction or the return. That is to say, the High Court didn't order the destruction or the return of the material. ...that was acquired mm. by the Federal Police during that raid. Yeah. So they've effectively broken the law, or if the AFP haven't broken the law, they've acted without lawful authority. They've gone in, they've taken some stuff, been some information, and they don't have to give it
2: back. Keep the loot. It's just civil trespass.
0: They sort of have broken the law. I think. Well, I, yeah. that's right. It's Not it's, 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 it's a tort at a minimum. Mm. But even if they, the AFP officers who did it thought they had the right to do it because they had a warrant... In effect, they've gone in, got some stuff, don't have to give it back. And it seems to me that, actually, I don't know this off the top of my head, but had it been something physical, had they come and taken the car unlawfully, they might have got some sort of tortious response re- requirement to hand it back. Mm. But because what was taken was bits, was you know data, um, there was no... There, there was no basis in equity in effect for the court to order its return.
2: And that was data that she sort of didn't effectively own, did she? Like it was stuff that had been provided to her.
0: Well, yeah but although I don't think to that. It was common law property,
2: wasn't it, originally?
0: Yeah, but I think it's more than that. I think it's stuff that was it's, it's all of the data, so it encompassed some of those things, but also other things on there that would have reasonably been held by her or her mm. employer. Um, but One of the reasons I think the High Court didn't order its return is because it wasn't really argued before them that there was some sort of property or tortious or equitable right in that data. I think the appellants ducked it, in effect. Uh, But what it means is that... If the police come in under a warrant and take your data, which and really data is, one, is the most important thing you can own if you can own it at the moment in terms of investigation, um, then there's nothing that you can do about it, even if they came in unlawfully. Mm. And one of the reasons given by the High Court for this is because it might be useful in a criminal proceeding. Oh. <laughs> and that's frightening to me mm. because that's the very place where it ought not be used. Mm. Um so, so doesn't
2: that reasoning sort of preempt or interfere with section 138 of the evidence act in a way in yeah. the sense that the parliament said that 138 exists to balance the question of whether evidence unlawfully ob- obtained can be admitted but if we have the civil court in effect <coughs> ordering police to hand it over doesn't it sort of interfere with that do you think
1: yeah well, so what the high yeah. court said was it would be to give decisive weight to the fact that the information was unlawfully obtained contrary to the rationale of Section 108 of the Evidence Act and the common law predecessor in and Cross... Clearly, I've
2: studied the decision. um,
1: (laughs) ..if the AFP was not able able to retain the information (laughs) for so long as it was required for the purpose of investigating and, if appropriate, prosecuting an offence or offences against Commonwealth law. And the AFP had given an undertaking not to access or use anything that they had obtained until this litigation Mm. was resolved so that the status quo effectively had been maintained to some degree. But what I find quite unsatisfactory about this judgment um, in one sense is that if Annika Smethurst had been able to get to the courthouse before the police started going through her things and getting into her house and had been able to point out that the warrant, which was manifestly invalid on its face, um, then she would have had relief at that point and she would have been able Mm. to stop the police from coming into her property and taking her things.
2: Which potentially creates sort of privileged categories of targets of investigations in this sense, that I know sometimes when legally uh, privileged information is in question that the police will not seize it and it will be arranged for the information to be stored at a particular place until a mm. court can rule on it.
1: That often happens with legal professional Yeah, people,
2: and that, it sort of creates two categories, is not it? Because in, in that situation where it's being held somewhere objective, then it won't be in the possession of the police. So if the solicitor or whoever is trying to uphold the privilege succeeds, then the police won't get it. But even
0: if they do get it, it would be inadmissible by virtue of the privilege provisions rather than the 138 provisions, right? So the privilege isn't waived by the mere fact of its possession. Yeah. Whereas you run the real risk here... But they could it.
2: succeed on different bases, I suppose, as well. Like, succeed on a ground other than privilege. Well, yeah. And it's not in the possession of a police because privilege was asserted.
0: Yeah, that's right. So mm. it gives some incentive to assert privilege it all does, the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So it, the High Court was split on that question, weren't they, on the question of whether it should be returned? They
0: were split, and the 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 minority was of the view that it should be returned, and effectively for the reasons that Felicity raises, which is, you know, we could have done it before. Why can't we do it now? I mean, it's an unwillingness to go down a road which just seems... The natural growth of equity law to address this situation. I mean it's a new category, that is to say it's data that's been acquired unlawfully it makes perfect sense to me that it should just be covered under the principles that are in existence, but the principles weren't extended that far, and to say it's kind of the idea that we're preempting 138 is neither here nor there, because that you're, you're in effect confusing the question of a person's rights, which is not to have their property unlawfully taken from them with the question of how they're going to fare in a criminal trial. And so you can't can't take the question of admissibility and, and kind of reason backwards from that and say, well, they should be entitled to possession of it because it may be admissible. Mm. Because you, if you follow that to its rational conclusion, well, they should be able to do whatever they want because it may be admissible. It just can't be the
2: law. And Section 138 is not like a a norm of conduct is it or trying to establish like it's not really speaking to that question no. of whether police should be able to retain things yeah. it's rather speaking to an admissibility mm, question mm. yeah yeah
1: so i think people had hoped that this case might do something groundbreaking or move the the dial at least a little in terms of press freedom in australia and one of the arguments that was put up or one of the questions that was stated in this case was in relation to whether a provision in the crimes act was invalid on the ground that it infringed the implied freedom of political communication.
0: Mm. But
1: the high court said that it was unnecessary to answer that question because they'd already determined that the warrant was invalid for those other technical reasons. But do you think Annika Smithers might have been able to get some better relief if she'd been able to more... Um... Well, she
2: had no standing on that, I think they said to them, eh? that mm. she, There's no clear prospect or imminent prospect of a criminal prosecution, so therefore she shouldn't be heard on that question of invalidity yet, because she succeeded in proving that the warrant was unlawful. And then if she's charged, then presumably she can litigate that. That was sort of their reasoning, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, and how that sits with the 138 reasoning is interesting, because there you have the prospect of the criminal trial being used in part as a justification mm. for per- permitting ongoing possession and then you've, the opposite's not permitted to be argued. Mm. Yeah.
1: So reporters without borders have a press freedom ranking for countries around the world and basically because of these raids and this kind of um, warrant being executed on Annika Smithhurst home... Last year, our ranking went down five points. Um,
3: Mm. Yeah, but how good are we going? Like, no one's coming in here with guns, and we are kicking ass this (laughs) side of
0: the. Well, sorry, when you mean your house on where you're zooming from?
3: Yes, Mm. where I am right now, physically. (laughs) Um, no one's coming in here, and we are doing this—you know—amazing work. This trip to power here, but bloody yes, we
0: are. How, like, the way this relates with the COVID app and the, the use of data that might otherwise be unlawfully acquired?
2: Well, I should say at the outset, I have downloaded the app.
3: Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I have. Fortunately, not we're not in we're the same room. The room? <laughs> is that what yeah. that weird <laughs> buzz is that I'm in? Yeah, no,
2: it's a good about. point though, Manny, because I suppose on the one hand, the government is telling people download the app there's going to be legislation that will guard the privacy of your information. Yet, on the other hand, we have this very recent decision of the High Court that says, notwithstanding that the government obtains obtains uh, electronically stored information from you in breach of the law, the police can retain it for use in a criminal prosecution. So it will be interesting to see if the COVID app legislation deals with that scenario and basically puts beyond doubt that that information cannot be used in any of the various ways that are controversial, including in a criminal prosecution. Though, you know, I've heard some informed commentary about this, um, and Phil Bolton was on a, um, a webinar the other night talking about, for example, the possibility of intelligence partners such as the United States of America picking up the information through their signals capacity mm-hmm. and then relaying it to the Australian government in ways that are not dependent on any particular statutory power um, or so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I've downloaded it. I think it's kind of necessary in these times, understand the rationale. But, yeah, it's difficult to see how legislation can really put these things beyond doubt unless it's very, very prescriptive.
3: I never even thought that, yeah, of course, the connection between the two, mm. the mm. data there, yeah. Yeah. There was a
0: draft published. everything, right? Yeah. There was a draft published on the 4th of May, an exposure draft of the bill um, effectively dealing with the COVID app. Um, I think they got one of the sections of the Constitution wrong, Um, (laughs) but I'm sure they'll fix that in due course. But um, it's in the recital provisions grounding the power. I think they mislabeled the quarantine um, provision in the Constitution. But... It's not at all clear to me, having read it three times, whether or not it does prevent the admission of the evidence. It's certainly arguable that it does, but I wouldn't. Re- I, if a client of mine came to me and said, Should I download the COVID app? Um, I would say, I'm not going to assist you committing any criminal offences. Um, but I would also say that if you know you're meeting with people that you don't want the government to know about, the COVID app is going to cause you problems.
2: It's going to store that information. It's going to store that
0: information. You can't be sure that no one's going to access it. And frankly, you can't be sure one way or another, even if it's not in the form that comes from the app, it's going to get before record in some way. It's
2: kind of funny how we're all assuming that it's impossible for people to be separated from their phones in this day and age. Yeah. That's Mm. really interesting so what's it called, that exposure
0: draft? Um, it's, it's just an exposure draft. Um, and that's it's, online? It's it. online, yeah. It's on my Facebook, the enough. Privacy Amendment Public Health Contact Information Bill 2020. Oh, yeah. We'll pass that one day. Mm. I mean...
3: When
1: Parliament reopens.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Six yes. to
3: 18 months from now,
0: that'll be law. What's a government without representative Parliament called? There must be a name for that kind of... Thing. Anyway... <laughs>
3: There was another topic that we spoke about, though, uh, in one of the earlier t- um, episodes, and you were all over at Flick.
1: It sort of links in because we're talking about the use of technology as an investigative tool and potentially unauthorised use of technology by police. <laughs> In episode four, listeners might remember we talked a lot about facial recognition technology Mm. and its explosion in lots of different settings, including use by police. Uh, And I think it's interesting for people to know that there's been a pretty recent revelation in the Australian context that is of note, um, which is that the Australian Federal Police have been revealed by an ABC um, journalist, Ariel Bogle, to have been using this facial recognition technology using an application or a company's tool um, called Clearview AI. And that company um, is quite a controversial player in this scene. There's been some really interesting and good reporting on it by the New York Times. It's actually headed up by an Australian entrepreneur. But the way that that program or tool operates is basically to data mine the entire web for pictures of people associated with, for example, their Facebook profile or other images that are online associated with um, a person's identity. Store that in this massive database and then allow that to be used um, by, for example, police agencies, a lot in the US, um, but in Australia, the AFP have been revealed to have used it, and... Um, to then try to identify potential suspects or things like that. So the AFP, um, between November last year and January this year, um, registered for free trials with the company and undertook searches um, in the context of uh, a child exploitation kind of task force that was led by the AFP and... There have been some, some calls in terms of, well, what's really going on here and the government should explain why the AFP has been using this um, unauthorised tool, uh, including concerns that it might jeopardise child exploitation investigations because if it's used in this unauthorised way, then... it's inadmissible... Maybe, yeah.
0: Although unlikely in light of recent judgments.
1: Mm. But basically there are concerns that there's not enough understanding or accountability about how this software tool works and how law enforcement is using it and... This company, Clearview AI, seems to be shrouded in quite a lot of secrecy in terms of their operations and security measures and things like that. So that's the latest on facial recognition.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. In the 1990s, I remember this narrative going around, which is, look, there's all this technological change that the government just can't get in front of and the laws can't get in front of the technological changes and so the law will be playing catch up. It's now thirty years later. That argument no longer flies to, to my mind. Like our policymakers should be across this material. They there's no excuse anymore. There's twenty years, twenty or thirty years of people going to university learning about technology. Many of whom should be employed by the government to get in front of these issues for us. And members of parliament should be young enough. To be, or some of the large number of them, should be young enough to be across all of these issues, Mm. and it blows my mind that that hasn't happened. I don't know why it hasn't happened, but it's no longer feasible, I say, for government to simply put its hand up and say, "Oh, we can't get in front of technology." They should be in front of it. They should be. the, The AFP should not be using technology that's not otherwise approved in some way by some polity. You know, it's just, it's, it's not fair because what we're talking about are intrusions into our privacy and our way of life that are just in some cases appalling. So,
2: yeah. And that came up a bit in the Smethurst decision, didn't it, in this sense that, that part of their consideration of why they wouldn't make an order to return was that there is no established right to privacy in tort law and therefore she couldn't ground some sort of, you know, proprietary-type interest yeah. in it through a right to privacy. You know, the law is kind of behind in that sense as well, and it might sort of be up to the judges, I think, to to step up.
0: Yeah, I mean, one wonders what the privacy commissioners are doing if they're not yeah. creating a tort of privacy. I think there might actually be a
2: bill before the state parliament. I think it's been introduced that that goes some way towards a right to privacy
1: I think there's been a real shift in thinking along the lines of, well, the technology exists that allows the police or investigative agencies to investigate these matters, including invading someone's person through DNA or other Mm. forensic procedures, including through technology and going behind data and all these different things. And there's just basically this idea that, well, we can do it, therefore we should do it, and we should use what comes from it Mm. there's always
2: a rationale Mm. but the cumulative effect of it sort of is the issue Mm.
1: Mm.
3: welcome back to the wigs oh my gosh this is What a great recap! It's like getting the band back together on Zoom. You guys look fantastic, by the way. (laughs) Like um, your screens have never looked cleaner. Mm, So well done to you. Yeah, thank you for cleaning your webcams before we started. Uh, We are closing the show off with an old favourite. We're bringing it back. (laughs) Fun things. Okay. Now, who on my screen is least likely to have thought of one? I will leave them to last. So, Felicity Graham, take it away. What's your fun thing during COVID nineteen?
2: How come you looked at me when you
3: said that? <laughs> <laughs> How do you know I looked at you?
2: You're, Sorry, a, you're
3: exactly <laughs> <You're
2: a> drawn-up. <laughs> please,
1: please. Uh, Jim. This little wig has been avoiding the market and staying at home. Mm. But oh, I
3: like what you did there. <laughs> it's a pin. <laughs> <ring>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good.
1: But uh, enjoying some of the amazing. Art and theatre that's available now online. So the National Theatre of the UK is putting out on YouTube a free play every week. Mm. Um, I watched recently the comedy Two Governors, One Man or One Man, Two Governors. It was hilarious. It was really good. Mm. Um, I think Frankenstein might be the one. Yeah, I
3: actually watched that. It just came out like yesterday. Yeah.
1: Crazy good.
3: Is it? Well, I didn't watch the whole thing. I just went, wow, that looks good. I've got to put that on my to-do list.
1: Yeah, and I'm also looking forward to watching an Australian ballet performance of cool. Romeo and Juliet that's coming up online soon, I think. Crazy.
3: Yeah, so do, so
1: do, it's good stuff. Do you just it up on your big screen, or do
0: you watch it on the laptop, or what are you doing? So, no, on sometimes... <laughs> <laptop>. <laughs> my <own lame> <laughs> sometimes on my
1: laptop, but Stop I also have room. a projector at home, oh, so nice. I oh, nice. put it up on my wall, and a good friend of mine has been... Um, doing live Facebook performances, playing the piano and singing. Nice. Um, hashtag Corona Crooner.
3: Corona Crooner. If, if you're, you're out there, interested, ladies and gentlemen, the Corona Crooner. Yeah,
1: my good mate He sings some great tunes, so I put him up on the. On Would the he board. license
3: any music for the weeks? I could ask him. Let's do it for the next episode. So you know my little interlude music. Yeah. Let's mm. let's bring some Corona. Some Cabode music into <laughs> the wings. <laughs> if that's good.
1: Yeah, so I've just been enjoying this kind of thing well from my home.
3: Excellent, excellent. Emmanuel Kirkicharian. So
0: yeah, I, I'm exercising my
3: right to silence. <laughs> I right. can't. I can't oh,
0: say. say I, 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 I can't say. Fun. I can't say what I'm going to do. That's fun. Um, I'm serious. Like I, I know. Oh, I'm, I bit, I'm. No, look. Don't. I'm a bit of a Debbie Downer. A bit, I can't. I can't. Normalize this space. I think
3: yeah, but people
0: you, should be reasonably unhappy in the not current every circumstances. Day, though, like every day, what about an hour? What are you doing? No, you, if you're not unhappy, okay. you don't. You, you're not a believer. Fantastic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I reckon the highlight of you so far has been tonight for
3: you. That's right. This, this, is, this is the it's best three D Zoom experience exactly. I've ever had. Well, yeah. good. There's your fun thing uh, recording the weeks. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Stephen Lawrence, the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo. What's Dubbo putting on the table for you,
2: mate? I just feel like I'm caught between these two extremes. On, you know, the one hand, I've got the heights of art and culture, yep. sort of viewing on a mobile phone, <laughs> <laughs> and then on the other hand, I've got Manny okay. over here in the misery corner. Pop um, looks now, Manny. Um, Mate, as usual, a little, little bit stuck for words ah, on this right one. Out. I'm moving house. Oh,
1: really? In
2: a week. Yeah, I oh, bought a new no. house. We're moving.
0: Um,
2: Come on, it's not really a house. It's staying in Dubbo.
1: It's a castle. Is this
0: like the sport? Yeah. Was it the sport minister? Or what was he the minister of who moved house? You know, got fined? It's a
2: reasonable excuse to move house. Okay. It's specifically oh, yes. spelled <laughs> out there. Right. And I'm not a minister of <laughs> the Crown. Doesn't that, yeah,
0: but right. you are <laughs> a deputy mayor. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. So um, you're staying in Dubbo?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have bought a new house Dubbo. Nice one. Which, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to just moving and having a new nice. place to be confined to. Yes, yeah. great. So I can zoom in to, to meetings like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. We'll yeah. Change yeah. of prison. Excellent, excellent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, transfer. Yeah.
3: Uh, my Liberate fun thing, I just wanted to put a plug out, which doesn't need a plug, but the Ozarks. You guys watching the Ozarks?
1: No. I've heard about it. Is
3: it, it. good? Uh, look, it's uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's good it's good you should watch it it's good good show what is, is that it? a crime show it's a crime show it's Breaking Bad Circuit 2.0 yeah right but it's good look there's nothing close to Breaking Bad so I'll take it
2: mate is this your fun thing or was that yeah, a that's it a it. No, i well,
3: so am going to plug a nec- multi-million dollar Netflix show? You want to Netflix know Jim's
2: fun thing.
3: That's it. Ozarks. I You've been watching Ozarks. I look forward to that. Okay. I come home and I look forward to the Ozarks. Interesting. Good, Good show. Get it in here. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that was The Wigs episode 22 coming at you live from the chambers of isolation. We'll see you uh, next time.
1: Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at... The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.